0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, writing is something many of us take for granted. But for those who are incarcerated, putting words on a page and finding a voice and new identity can be transformative.
1: You know, my my circumstances was one where people left me for dead. My family, my entire family died while I was in prison, and I constantly turned to poetry to keep myself going.
0: And later, why we all have a responsibility to read what's being written inside America's penitentiaries.
2: George Floyd videos are the writing of incarcerated people. While we might say, well, this person's a criminal, why should I listen to them? The reason we should listen to them is we have no other witnesses to how this system works and exactly what it is that brings people to the decisions they make. Only these folks know.
0: What the writings of prisoners teach us about the human condition and the reality of our criminal justice system, all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Today, roughly 1.8 million people are incarcerated in America. Tens of thousands of them are in solitary confinement. Last month, New York was the first state to sign a new law banning more than 15 consecutive days in solitary confinement. And this movement is slowly growing. The UN has defined extended solitary as torture. Now imagine if you had to spend years locked in a tiny cell for 23 hours a day. How would you fill your time? How would you challenge yourself during the day? How would you stay sane? Ian Manuel spent 18 years of his life in solitary confinement for shooting a woman in the face during a robbery. He was just 13 years old at the time. His victim survived, in a sense reconciled with Manuel, and advocated for his release. But for 18 years, Ian Manuel's only escape was his imagination, and with pen and paper, he channeled it into poetry. Manuel has since been released from prison, but he continues his passion for poetry and writing, sharing his life experiences in a new book called My Time Will Come. Ian Manuel, welcome to Life Examined.
1: You're welcome. And thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. I, I know this is this is this is hard stuff. And, and you're talking about it a lot these days. But but could you go back in time and, and talk about your first experience in solitary confinement? What what was that like for you?
1: It's difficult to put my finger on the exact first time I was in solitary because uh, I was in solitary a lot from age 11. Uh, when I first went to the, the juvenile detention center mm-hmm. to uh, Uh, In the county jail, when I was looking out of my window, uh, I had a window at the time in the county jail on the juvenile floor watching the Super Bowl uh, stadium lights light up, to my first day in prison when Mm -hmm. I was placed in solitary confinement from uh, the onset uh, because of my age. Uh, And, you know, then when I was finally released to open population, uh, given all the responsibilities of an adult at 14 at that time, I rebelled and was eventually placed in long-term solitary for things like walking in the grass or being disrespected by the officers and disrespecting them back and uh, being in unauthorized areas. And it set off a a tone where I was placed in solitary for 18 consecutive years. So Mm. when you say the first time I was placed in solitary, it's hard to kind of just put my finger on which – time are you talking about?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's an incredible amount of time. I guess I'm wondering just about the experience of being in there alone and what happens to the mind. Can you talk to me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I can. Um, you know, so I'll, 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 I'll pick, I'll pick the time from age 15 sure. to age 33. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll imagine that's what you're talking about. Oh. Mm. Um, being in a solitary confinement, it, it is a—it's difficult on the human mind. It's an experience that no human being should ever have to go through. Um, and you know, uh, the way I describe it, uh, it's like being trapped in a walking al- elevator. Um, hmm. um, and the, the way to get off us out of solitary confinement is three levels to this elevator. Uh, floor one, floor two, floor three, with floor one being the most restrictive and floor three being the least restrictive. uh where you're given privileges, but being in there and just trying to survive, it's like uh being a air. Just imagine air as being reality, and being underneath the water as 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 the place of uh your, where your imagination mm-hmm. lies. And so I would dive into my imagination to survive. And uh, many people lived in their imagination and, and didn't come up for air. And those are the people that, you know, uh, who developed schizophrenia. Um, and I, I came up for air, so I didn't go crazy. But you have to kind of block out the harsh realities of your everyday life to survive in there.
0: Yeah, you had to dip into your imagination. I, I wonder what what kind of memories did did you come up with? What kind of thoughts did you have when he went below the ocean?
1: Great question. I several things. I imagined myself. I would always imagine myself out free. I would imagine myself as a superstar rapper, mm-hmm. actor, uh, someone with power because I was powerless, and I just wanted to be in a position to help those who were less fortunate and people that was still stuck in prison or in solitary confinement, uh, I would always just visualize myself in a a more powerful situation than the one I was in, you know, because I was helpless in that cell and depended upon people to help me, and I was abandoned, and I was, uh, you know, my, my circumstances was one where people left me for dead. My family, my entire family died while I was in prison, and I constantly turned to poetry, uh as part of my trip beneath the surface to help me survive. And I, I challenged myself. I uh, rewrite Maya Angelou's poems, Still I Rise. I rewrite Eminem's song, Lose Yourself and Stand. I challenged myself to uh, set up these Olympic-style obstacle courses of, of of literature to keep myself going throughout the day so I wouldn't be bored by the monotony of the day.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And and for those that that you know d- don't know what it's like to be in solitary, do you have access to books or to writing things like that?
1: It depends on what level of solitary you're on. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could be on the most restrictive level where I, where I was kept for much of my time and books aren't allowed. Uh you're only allowed a Bible no matter what they try to unless you're on strip status, uh they allow you to have some religious material. But mostly you're in there with just you, your thoughts, pen and piece of paper, uh, sometimes with the mattress, sometimes without a mattress, sometimes with sheets, sometimes without sheets. Sometimes you're being tortured with chemical agents uh, that burn your skin. Sometimes you're being stripped and injected with psychotrophic meds that you don't need. Sometimes you're, you're having your stomach pumped for pills, you did, for pills you didn't swallow and overdose and take. It's a torture chamber, man. It's 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 really a challenge of the human mind for a person to survive. And sometimes people ask me, Ian, how did you survive with your sanity and humanity and talent intact? And, and sometimes that's just a testament of of the human spirit uh and God. Like, I can't tell you how I survived or what exactly I did. I think one thing that helped was being me, even though no child should be placed in solitary confinement at such a young age, I think me being placed in solitary as a child with a vivid imagination helped me survive solitary, because once you are adult and your brain is formulated already. You have a tendency not to lean on to your own imagination. And, and that's a shame, because like Albert Einstein said, imagination is more important than knowledge.
0: Mm, right. And, and you would eventually turn to poetry as something that was really important to you.
1: How,
0: how did writing keep you sane and just remind you who you were?
1: Well, in solitary, you're not really distracted by the everyday things of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not really, uh, you have nothing but time on your hand to dive into the depths of your spirit. And so I, I found myself doing some deep thinking and some, and some deep reading when I wasn't on the most restrictive levels. I turned to books like the several spirit, Seven Spiritual uh, Habits of Success or the... Uh, uh, the Seed of the Soul by Gary Zukav, mm-hmm. or the Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, yeah. I I or New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. It was these things that that allowed me to just grow spiritually, and, and it, it was reflected in my writing as well.
0: I was wondering if you could actually just recite a few a few lines. I know there's there's a poem that's that's really important to you. Every time I breathe, could you give us a little taste of what that is?
1: Yeah, uh, there's this poem. It's in my forthcoming memoir, uh, 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 My Time Will Come. And I wrote this poem um, after I was taken out of my cell in chains and handcuffs because in prison they use PBS as a punishment. The television network PBS is used as a punishment because prisoners want to watch sports and entertainment. And so uh, sometimes we are forced to watch the, PBS as a punishment. Well, it backfired on them this day because there was a show on about three South Bronx teenagers who learned to express themselves through spoken word poetry. And I couldn't wait to get back in my cell and write this poem uh, after being exposed to this new form of creativity. And I wrote this poem that says, every time I breathe, I feel the need to justify my existence, to take this moment that I'm living and enjoy every millisecond in it. My life and my struggles, not many can comprehend it. My desire for freedom burns like a source is inside a skillet. Tomorrow isn't promised, so I'm thankful for this minute. Though in prison merely existing, it's like my life has been suspended. But that means it's temporary because I haven't been expelled. And I still got a chance as long as I can (sighs) in and exhale every time I breathe. Every time I breathe, I'm thankful for the oxygen from the trees. And little things like little bees, that get overlooked until they sting. Every day I'm faced with obstacles that block the progress to my dreams. But the blockades only masquerades like costumes on Halloween. I've been through enough pain to make a sane man just scream. But instead, I take a deep breath and just breathe and and the poem goes on and on but i know we don't have that much time yeah. so i won't share the entire thing
0: yeah i i love that Th- thank you for sharing that I, I is there anything else you would add to that what was going through your mind when you wrote it i i was struck by that even the when you mentioned the bee kind of the small things we don't we don't recognize until they sting there's so many beautiful lines in there
1: yeah yeah so one thing about solitary i'm telling you as as painful as it is it allows you to just hyper focus on things like hmm. uh like the things that you would miss in a in an everyday life like you see a beef line and 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 you don't really pay attention to it just try not to be stung by it right hmm. but when you're in solitary even the most minute details seem to uh be hyper uh focused on uh, you you seen you seem to hyper focus on things that Uh, might not really catch your attention in society. So um, the metaphors that's in that point uh, are just comes from me being focused and solitary like I wouldn't have been if I was in society. Mm. Mm. So I, I was able to find the good in the bad situation.
0: Yeah, yeah. How was it, I mean, to just not have access to things like human touch or to feel the rain outside or, or, you know, to see the things that we take for granted every day?
1: Well, I, I became a pretty good self masseuse, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, massaging my body in ways that, you know, like, you know, I, I, I longing for human touch and, and, and not being able to, to feel it will drive you to try to touch yourself, you know, and make sure, like, I, I didn't even have a mirror. So, like, when my hire, my lawyer hired a photographer to come take pictures of me, It's uh, he speaks about it in his book, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. Mm-hmm. He, he, he talks about how I wrote him actually begging for the pictures, uh, cause I wanted to know what I looked like. I hadn't seen myself in so many years. And to have that photographer take those pictures of me for that hour I was out of my cell, was like a lifeline of 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 me to to society, and I wanted to be able to share it with my family uh, that I had left, or my friends that I thought I had left, and to show them, look, I still exist. I'm still a person. I'm still alive. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So, being denied human touch and and even to know what your own self looks like is is something that no one should ever have to go through.
0: There have been some small changes. In New York, for example, we're seeing um, some limitations to solitary confinement. But but I wonder for you, when you, when you look at this as a, as a U.S. practice in prisons and jails all across the U.S., what would you like to see done about solitary confinement?
1: One of the things I like to see done is that no child should ever be kept in solitary confinement. And then that there's a cap placed on the amount of time a person could stay in solitary confinement for adults. I mean, you don't need to place someone in solitary confinement for years, months, and decades to modify their behavior. Mm. It becomes torture. I mean, uh it the U, Uh the UN says solitary confinement for over 15 days is considered torture. Well, I was kept there for 18 consecutive years. I have friends like Michael McKenzie and Daryl Streeter. And, and Demetrius McCutcheons, who have been in solitary confinement for 20 and 25 years right now in the state of Florida, and, and they need help. Uh, no one should be kept in solitary confinement alone. Each one of those guys I just named, mental health has deteriorated severely, and they need to be, I'm, and I, I'm crying out for those guys to be re- immediately released from solitary confinement given the mental health care and medical treatment that they need.
0: Hmm. Mental health is a really big component. I mean, can you just, for the people you see in solitary confinement, what what happens to their mental health?
1: Not everybody makes it out like an Emanuel. I'm one of the fortunate few. I've seen people deteriorate and cut their stomachs open and place plastic forks and sporks in their stomachs just to go to the outside hospital Mm. to to be treated like a human being, Mm. you know? Um, I've seen people... uh, uh, overdose not only seeing people I've overdosed on even though I didn't at that time they was pumping my stomach, but I've overdosed on Tylenol just to go to outside hospital to be in a remote control bed and 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 have a TV and hmm. to be to be able to see human beings, man. It's 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 crazy the limits people push themselves to uh to survive. And I wrote this poem called Genie in the bottle that really sums up some solitary confinement. And I hope I can remember it because I want to share it with you guys now. It says I'm the genie in the bottle the world has forgot. They put me in this abyss and closed up the top. I was a little boy when they did what they did, but time continued to tick and I'm no longer a kid. My mother is dead and so is my father. I've been abandoned by family while trapped in this bottle, but I hold on to hope that someone will open the top, answer my prayers and help me out. Sometimes people pick up the bottle and put their eye to the hole, but instead of compassion, acting different and cold. I suffer sensory deprivation, a lost sense of direction. There's no mirror in this bottle for me to see my reflection. They say being lonely and alone are two different definitions, but it's only me in this bottle, so I fit both descriptions. What I need is a friend, someone to extend a hand. It can be as simple as picking up a pen. Someone who cares, accepts me for who I am. My magnetic personality and my baggage from the past. Someone who helps heal the sorrow, will work on building our tomorrows. Someone who refuses to leave me to die in this bottle. Mm. Yeah. Wow.
0: I can hear just the power and the emotion behind your voice that one that that seems to bring up a lot when you read it doesn't it
1: yes it does it's it's a poem that uh I wrote man when I was in the depths of solitary just crying out for some help and someone to communicate with someone to touch someone to love and someone to love me back
0: Mm. how did you kind of recover when you got out? What was life like as you tried to readjust to being outside in, in the I'm real world? I'm
1: still recovering, mm. but uh, one of the things I did was I, uh, the Equal Justice Initiative and some friends paid for me to go to this uh, high-end, ex- extensive therapy program out in Arizona. Mm. I was there three weeks, 12 hours of therapy a day, seven hours, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. at night. And mm. everything from equine therapy to psychodrama therapy, to electric therapy, it was just an intense program that kind of helped break the, the chains so to, so to speak that I didn't even know exist, the psychological bondage that I was still in from prison. Mm. So uh, I, I did a lot of crying and a lot of healing in that program and I think all prisoners should go through some type of real, rehabilitative uh, therapy program. That, that breaks the trauma that you experience that you don't even know exists.
0: Mm. This is a program where we love to just ask people about, about uh, their relationship to faith or spirituality. And I wonder, you mentioned it earlier, how, how big of a role was that in, in keeping you strong and sane in those dark years?
1: Yeah, so I was raised in a Christian household. Uh, I constantly heard my mom's voice. Uh, uh, Baby, whatever you do, don't never let them take your mind. I, I recall I went to Catholic school as a child, uh, and I and then in prison I studied every religion it was, uh, yeah. everything from Islam to Buddhism. And, but it was really Buddhism that stood out stood out to me a lot, hmm. uh, and just you know, just some of the practices of Buddhism and being alone and seeking enlightenment is some of the things that I call recall from being growing up in solitary confinement because I grew up in solitary confinement mm. from age fifteen to age thirty three, man. And it was just uh it was a process and it was faith that definitely got me through. And I although I hate that experience, I wouldn't change a thing because it made me the man I am today.
3: Mm.
0: And Manuel, thank you so much for this 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 powerful conversation today.
1: Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it.
0: Ian Manuel is an author, activist, and poet who spent 18 years in solitary confinement. He was released in 2016. His book, due out later this year, is titled My Time Will Come. Still to come, from a writer who made it out to one who's still behind bars, but has made quite a name for himself as a journalist. Also, before we take a quick break, I just want to say it's been an exciting first year for our show Life Examined. And if you've been enjoying our programs, we hope you'll consider KCRW as part of your plan for a better tomorrow. And donate today at kcrw.com give. And thank you.
2: Introducing the KCRW Donation Car. Designed to be recycled.
0: We just heard from Ian Manuel, who talked about transforming his pain into poetry as he spent 18 years in solitary confinement as a teenager and young man. So how can writing work to heal? Can it help those who are only identified by a crime committed long ago find some self-esteem and a new identity? Despite being overcrowded and underfunded, some prisons do offer educational programs like writing classes. Our next guest not only attended one, but used what he learned to become a nationally recognized journalist behind bars. John J. Lennon is a contributing writer for the Marshall Project, a contributing editor at Esquire, and an advisor to the Prison Journalism Project. His articles have appeared in the New York Times and the Atlantic. He's also prisoner number 04A0823 at Sullivan Correctional Facility in New York, where he's serving an aggregate sentence of 28 years to life. And he joins us now from the prison payphone, John J. Lennon. Welcome to Life Examined.
3: Oh, thanks for having me,
0: John. Can you just tell me a little bit about why you love writing so much, and, and what it's done for your life?
3: Yeah, you know, I'm a first-person journalist. So I, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, so it's like I, I weave my story through 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 the piece. But like writing the sort of stories that I do, you sort of have to have character and bring that character to life, mm. and understanding character on this deep dive into that level, which obviously, you know, kind of teaches you firsthand, teaches you, you know, empathy. And that's something that I think you know, lots of folks in prison struggle with. I mean, that's what it does for me. And, you know, of course, you know, it's on, a, on, a, on, a, on a more candid level, I mean, you know, you come to prison, you're incredibly irrelevant, you know, you're publishing. I, I've been fortunate to have editors and build relationships and publish in these places and really be taught. And help discover my voice, and, and and so it's relevance too, right? Yeah. You know, it's like on the one hand you're told, man, you're nothing, lock in. I mean, there's been many times. I was gonna say, I was many times that I just, like, you know, I'm having like a rough day, and you mm-hmm. just, you just pick up one of one of my magazines, and you just open to a spread, and be like, I did that, you know. Mm. So yeah, how does that
0: how does that make you feel? <laughs> really, what 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 is that like when when you're sitting in your small cell block, but you pick up the New York Times, the Atlantic. What what comes over you?
3: I mean, it's a sense of accomplishment. It's a sense of accomplishment. It's it's a sense of responsibility, too. Oh, it's an interesting question. Like sometimes guys are, you know, sometimes they can be a little uncomfortable or they may not like the way, you know, I, I refer to them in a sentence or what, something I use mm-hmm. to say, uh, to describe them um and um, so it's a sense of power to answer your question it, it, it is it, it's empowering publishing, but it's yeah. also it's also it's it's an incredible uh, sense of responsibility comes with it too right and I think it's important as journalists and all of us i mean I think guys in here we certainly know you know that you guys guys like running around with 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 you know tabloids calling them you know these terrible things, and uh that may not be the full story so here I am, like, sort of contesting this other narrative that tabloids say about my, my peers, mm-hmm. um, which is how I am the New York Times magazine piece, you know? And that's an incredible sense of possibility and power, like, to, to sort of say, hey, yeah. you know, that's not the story. This and, is the story.
0: Yeah, and and people are rarely just good or bad. And yet, I think, in terms of our psychology, we're we're always looking for the caricature, right? So I'm sure in prison— People want to label everyone in there as bad. C- can you talk about how in your work you're trying to bring out a three-dimensionality, a sense of depth to the people around you versus versus the caricature?
3: You know, I was talking to, like, like my buddy Simon last night. Um, he was a guy who's convicted of double homicide. You know, he was uh, deep deeply in the lifestyle of organized crime. But, you know, he... He didn't commit the murders on the night that, uh,
1: the murder that he was
3: convicted of. He didn't commit them. His brother committed them, and his brother admitted it on the stand. And, but, you know, but the FBI had a file on this guy, and he was really, he was really the target, and it was, it was such a, I mean, so he had, so, you know, a guy with files on him, and, you know, the narrative that is like happening, like uh, on one end, and then, and then, you know, 25 years later, you know, in prison, the character that's before you in the yard are are two different characters, right? I mean, they're two different characters, but uh, they're stories that can be told from two different points of view, too, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's always the prosecutor that's writing the story or a journalist that's writing the story, that doesn't have like the intimate access to the character. Uh, then you may not be getting the full story all the time. Mm-hmm. So, if, to your point, to your question, yeah, characters, especially like somebody like him, he is he is very three dimensional. He's he, he's a family man. He, he's a guy that's like always trying to like give you, uh, literally giving you the shirt off of his back. Uh, I remember, like, he's he, he's telling me every day how to move in this prison and not be resented. Mm-hmm. He's like, John, you gotta like get out of your head, like say you know say say good morning to the officers, like you know what I mean? You gotta, you got. I mean, it's just he's he's show, he's showing me how to be a better character and how to move and teaching me charisma, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something. You know and he's doing that not because he wants anything from me because it's just, it's just who he is yeah and, you know and so it's like knowing these people on this sort of intimate level and having access uh, it allows you to, to flesh out their character in motion those little those little moments is, is, is what you could pick up uh, yeah and I try to document good writing
0: right right from the years that you've spent in prison do you at this point feel that the system itself, what is offered, what someone is capable of doing in there, is ultimately one? That can lead to to a rebirth or to a sense of rehabilitation or to finding themselves. It, it, is that possible in the prison
3: system today? Well, I mean, a lot of that's an individual journey, uh, mm-hmm. Jonathan. You can't like put it all, all on the you know the, the system. Uh, is it an ideal system? You're asking. No, of course. I think we all know It's disgusting living in prison. This is mm-hmm. this is a horrible system. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just like this. I mean. I mean, I hate to be sort of like glib about it, but it's just, no, no, there's, there's nothing going on in the American system, in the American prison system generally. I mean, there's been some strides recently. Uh, For example, Pell Grants were overturned. There'll there'll probably be more colleges going on in prison, college courses coming into prison, which is great, you know. Um, There's been a couple pockets of of, of prisons that have pockets of rehabilitation in prisons that I've been in, like Sing Sing, as I just mentioned. There's a couple of college programs there, and there's guys that have gotten their act together, and that, and that, has, that is help from the institution itself, so I'm not sort of snubbing my nose at that, but mm-hmm. but, but I've, I've been in six maximum security prisons, and you know most of them didn't have many opportunities at all, certainly not college at the time I was there. Uh, There's also this notion of like sort of coming to terms with your crime, right? You know, I've never Had anybody I've never been in like a therapy group. I'm gonna need some therapy when I get out of here Like I got I got like a a great CV, but I'm deeply depressed Mm. like I, I have I've written about mental illness because uh, I mean, it runs in my family, and I observe it here on a pretty awful level. You know, ten—the fact that like ten of every eleven psychiatric patients are housed by the U.S. government right. in jail or prison—is one of our, you know, worst plights in this great nation of ours. So I'm just saying, and and they're all, they're all, they're all here, you know? So like, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm depressed too. Like I was having an horrible day today with, I was, I was just, you try to just, you you slog through the work. It's like, it's, it's, it's the same way it is for people on the outside. You Mm. slog, but it's just to the tune of yelling and gates cracking and bells ringing. And, and then you're just, (laughs) you're just miserable, like Mm. in a cell, like it's disgusting what it is. Um and you just wait for it to pass and uh, you try to get to the yard you try to get your heart rate going you know it's it, it gets pretty bad sometimes you know uh, I was looking forward to this conversation too because intellectual stimulation uh kind of uh snaps you out of it gives you a little high you're like all right but, you know this, is, this is got somebody challenged me you know yeah yeah <laughs> yeah you're waiting for that uh, some, some type of a uh, conversation.
0: How do you how do you make yourself uh, feel better when you're in these conditions?
3: I don't know. It's, I, I try to lose myself in the work. You know, I try to. You know, I, I, have, I struggle with my relationship with God, too. I'll be honest. I try to just lose myself in the work. You know, just keep slogging through the work.
0: Has your writing has it removed you from other inmates?
3: Sure. You know, I'm, I'm walking a tightrope here, Jonathan. You know, mm. it's a lot. There's a lot of envy on both sides.
1: Yeah.
3: Uh... You know, I am alone. You better believe that I am alone, and I'm vulnerable. And but you know, that's that's just what it is. You know, I'm, I'm resented by the officers. Um, not all, some. Uh, the administration, and I would say not all with them. Some people are people. They ain't all bad. They ain't all good. We're just you know people are people. You know, and, and then in here too. Uh, you know, with with my peers, not all, some. You know, but look, I'm not. I'm not complaining, you know. I'm, I'm grateful. Um, mm. I think we're all trying to figure it out, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's true.
3: Yeah, I'm just trying to figure it out in a cell with a lot of noise in the background, and uh, you know, often you know, some some pretty gnarly bouts of depression. But um, but you know, I, I keep my drive, um, and I also want to keep. I also want to keep some other stuff too. I want to keep my serenity.
0: Do you feel like the the system should let you out? Do you feel like you're ready to go?
3: do, yes. I, I do feel like I'm ready to go, yes. There's only, there's only punishment being fulfilled at this point. I ended one of my pieces in the New York Review of Books, but I said, uh, you see, only the man that has enough good in him can feel the punishment of the crime. And as I've gotten better, as I've become a better man, this prison sentence has become harder. Mm-hmm.
0: that line sticks with me. Is there anything else you could say about that?
3: Yeah, no, it, it just gets me emotional because it's just, you, I just feel it. You know, I yeah. just feel this time now more. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, you know, just, you just feel it. I'm just ready. Mm-hmm. The sun's coming out right now. Yeah. And, 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 uh, I think, you know, I'm in a yard ER just to, I do like to set scenes, you know, I, I was like, it came out to this, this prison, uh, yard, and there's, like, basketball courts, and there's always, like, a lot of, uh, there's a block, and there's a tower, and it was raining all day, and there's a lot of, it was just gray out, you yeah. know, and it stopped, and he let us out, and was waiting to, um, to, uh, to talk to you, because I'm, you know, so I came, and, uh, and it's just, just right now, like, at the end of this, this, uh, this interview, like, the sun came out, so, I feel better.
0: <laughs> <laughs> John J. Lennon, um, joining us from Sullivan Correctional Facility, I, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you could make some time to chat with us on Life Examine. Thank you. Oh, it was my pleasure,
3: thank you for the opportunity.
0: Oftentimes, behind a talented writer like John J. Lennon is a great teacher. And all across the country there are educators who make time to go into the prisons and hold classes. One of whom is Doran Larson. He's a professor of literature and creative writing at Hamilton College in New York and director of the America Prison Writing Archive. He's the editor of Fourth City, Essays from the Prison in America and author of Witness in the Era of Mass Incarceration. Larson has spent years teaching writing classes to prisoners and joins us now to talk about why their stories are as important for us to read as they are for them to write. Doran Larson, welcome to Life Examined.
2: Uh, thanks for inviting me. Really appreciate it.
0: We just heard from John Lennon, who, who is still in prison, and um, he's gone on to have quite a remarkable career as a writer. And, and if I have this right, you you have met him and even taught him. Is that is that correct?
2: Uh, yes, I met John um, between 2006. I think he joined the creative writing class that I ran at Attica mm. um, in about 2009, um, and that class ran ran from 2006 to 2016. Um, and he uh, joined re- relatively late, um, but he was uh, a, a quick learner, uh, mm. as you can imagine. Um, and uh, you know, in, in that class, uh, I think an important thing to understand about writing workshops in prisons. Um, is they are focused primarily on the writing, mm. but inevitably they become places where um, the men are in obviously challenging environments uh, develop a sense of trust uh, among themselves that the stakes of what we're talking about stay inside the classroom mm. uh, and that our focus is on writing uh, and um, you know bringing their voices to the fore, uh, discovering an authentic voice, um, and making those accessible to the world outside. Um, and the ability that they learn, in fact, one of the things I have to teach them is actually to be critical hmm. um, because they tend to feel so strongly uh, the need to support each other um, in that sort of that, that little island um, of sanity inside these rather insane institutions um, that, that they, uh, they err on the side of being supportive, right? So I have to sort of model for them being critical of, of their work as well.
0: Yeah, interesting. I mean, how, how does it feel for you when you go on and see someone like John Lennon publish in big uh, publications? Um, I mean, I, I, I'd imagine that must be quite gratifying. Uh,
2: it is. Um, uh, my thinking in the class, though, was also that um, uh, that everybody uh, was uh, in one group um, and we were all on a pl- level playing field once we mm-hmm. entered. So there were men in that class who were still working on their GEDs. Uh, they'd had horrible experiences with public education, if much at all. Um, others who had had uh, pretty sound public education. Um, but the thing that I emphasize with everyone is that everyone is where they are when they come into the classroom, and we're moving to push everyone forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and John, you know, as I mentioned, was a, you know extraordinarily uh, quick study. Um, and people would come in and take the class Uh, They might stay for a few weeks, you know, for a few months. Um, And uh, there's a core of about six men who stayed on for years. Um, And they will, you know, they'll engage in that. They get the, you know, very powerful therapeutic effects uh, that can come from writing um, and articulating, um, you know, what they've seen, what they've experienced, what they're going through by being incarcerated. But John really found in writing, in some sense, a sense of a new identity for himself. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that's common for people who are writing for the first time, uh, when they're incarcerated because they know what the outside world thinks of them. Um, and having a new kind of identity could be transformative for them, but he really took this on as a kind of professional task, uh, to, um, you know, learn the ropes, uh, and then to go on and and develop his work as well.
0: Yeah. you, You mentioned there, this idea of the therapeutic effects of writing. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how, what writing does to the person, to the soul, that that can take them somewhere new, somewhere healing.
2: Um, I think it's the case, I've been, you know, teaching uh, writing for decades. Uh, but the effects, those effects, I, I think are, are common to anyone who begins writing for the first time. Um, when you put your voice on the page, uh, in some sense, you're creating a second self. But you're also creating a self, which is also a kind of mirror image of you, right? It's your voice. Um, It's your representation of yourself, of the world around you as you see it. Um, And I think that's the case for any writer who's really serious and thinks about the process they're going through in becoming writers. Um, But for incarcerated people who have this terrible image in the world outside, um, the idea of uh, being something other then their crimes, hmm. uh, as I've mentioned before, is transformative. I know that um, uh, there was one man in the class who, the first time he saw his uh, his name in print um, in a collection of uh, essays that um, and a short story that I, I helped get published in a literary journal, he slept with a copy under his pillow, um, and he literally sort of had had his hand under the pillow and says he was in contact with that all night. Um, and all he was thinking about is like I'm no, I'm no longer just X, right? I'm no mm-hmm. longer just my crime. I'm something else. Um, but also, you know, the process of a workshop. Workshops are emotionally, you know, um, you know, uh, can be very turbulent places. Yeah. Uh, they can be very intense places. Uh, and particularly for men who were willing from early on or came to it later on about writing nonfiction. In some sense, what was going on in that classroom was what prisons were originally conceived to do, is to put people in a kind of timeout for a period of time and think about their actions and what drove their decisions and their actions. And there was a you know utopian belief that through that reflection, one would come to a kind of spontaneous sense of repentance um, and uh, penitence, thus a penitentiary. Uh, and ironically, these days, uh, doing that um, is in some sense working against the institution that people are being held inside, um, not just continuing uh, what those institutions are doing. So, uh, you know, that work, uh, a- again, is not tr- just transformative in terms of their sense of a public identity, um, but also it can have several levels of effects. One, very practically, several men, you know, said over the course of the years, I was out on the yard, you know, somebody was confronting me, and rather than immediately reacting, I stopped and thought, how would I write this scene? Hmm. And that moment gave me the ability to sort of step back, right, um, and think about another way of addressing what was coming at me. Uh, At the level of the actual writing process, uh, journaling as well as nonfiction writing in particular uh, are places where... Uh, people kind of sort out i think this is the case for for all writers in many ways but it's a sort of sorting out how does my thinking process actually unfold mm-hmm. what comes first do i have an idea first do i have a voice first do i have you know a situation first uh, and it's an, it allows the possibility of thinking uh, thinking about and sort of mapping how it is that my um, mind operates how my voice operates, how my impulses uh, feed or impede that process, um, and becoming comfortable with uncertainty, because writing is always a kind of leap into the dark. Right? Mm-hmm. You don't even if you know the story you want to tell, you don't necessarily know how you're going to tell it, or your ability to actually get it on the page. So it's a process of sort of uh, you know going into a dark room full of furniture and walking around bumping into things. Making messes, making noises, until you finally get a sense of this is where I am and this is what, um, uh, you know, how I can operate here. And we're talking about, again, about one's own sense of oneself mm. and how one uh, responds emotionally uh, and psychologically and intellectually. Yeah. And that process, right, of self understanding uh, is particularly important for people who, uh, um, you know, basically may not have felt in control right? Of the decisions they make.
0: Yeah, there, there's so much in what you said that, that resonates and is fascinating. And, and I'm really glad you mentioned that that first piece about what a prison was intended to do almost philosophically in its origins, because it, you know, I've been doing some reading about this, and there was almost a sense of monasticism, of being in a cell. I mean, when you look at the way certain Christian monks live or others, it's this idea of isolation of being present with your thoughts, connecting to a higher power. And 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 as you said, there was a certain utopianism in that. And it's something we haven't had a chance to discuss, but I think that it's it's just it's it's shocking and also scary to think that that might have been the intention, but where we have got now seems to more of just be these punitive places where people are kind of languishing away.
2: And the key to that difference is that, um, I mean, it's important to keep in mind that the people who conceived of and designed prisons, uh, the penitentiary originally, were the same people who signed the Constitution, uh, or rather the Declaration of Independence. Uh, And the idea of creating more rational responses to crime uh, were very much part of this kind of revolutionary um, vision of the natural rights of all human beings, all right? Uh, That even incarcerated people uh, still retained. Um, their citizenship um, and their right to be treated um, with decency, Uh, partly because one quarter of all uh, British immigrants at that time were actually um, transported felons. Mm -hmm. So there's a great awareness of uh, what tyrannical legal systems uh, could do. Uh, But in that original thought uh, was that once you entered the prison, that the punishment in some sense stopped the moment you crossed over that line from outside to inside. The inside was about looking forward and thinking about how what is best for the individual in terms of their moving into another way of thinking and another kind of behavior. Uh, sadly, the first prisons uh, quickly became overcrowded and filthy, uh, and the people who were bl- and and the blame was placed on other incarcerated people. What we need is more isolation, right? Uh, so, uh, Eastern State Prison famously had it was entirely full. Uh, of um, uh, complete isolation cells,
3: mm.
2: uh, and as you can imagine, people went mad uh, more often than they um, you know, find themselves improving. But still, it was a vision toward the, the prison is the beginning of a new future. These days, unfortunately, what we have is that the, the prison is a continuation of punishment for acts in the past that can never be undone. Mm. Uh, and this literally comes up at parole boards. So they'll say you've done great work. You've done all this programming. You've done all kinds of the positive things, but because of the nature of your crime, right, we cannot release you. Uh, and, and now we have a very backwards-looking system.
0: I wonder what drew you to this work. Uh, a respected professor at, at a, at a top-shelf liberal arts college, Hamilton College in New York. What, what 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 made you want to walk into one of these prisons and and work with folks that are incarcerated?
2: Uh, the question is really why did I continue uh, less mm. than why I started the the beginning was actually quite haphazard, sort of accidental. Um, I happened to meet a man in uh, Buffalo where I was living at the time, um, who ran a discussion group inside Attica Correctional Facility, in which uh, folks from outside would come in. And sit with incarcerated folks. You just talk with how they were uh, coping uh, with being in prison. It was actually a group that grew out of the 1971 rebellion at Attica um, with a you know need for more contact with the community. And I was so impressed by the level of honesty in that uh, group and the conversation that, and the questions that were asked by the men in that group uh, that I wanted to continue. But my teaching schedule changed. So I proposed you know doing a creative writing class. Now, why I stayed, uh, two reasons in particular. One. Um, a, uh, as I mentioned, a sort of core of about six men came back week after week after week. I mean, if I'd had, you know, people moving in like week by week and moving out, I don't know that I would have stayed with it. But those men stayed uh, with it uh, over the course of those years. Um, and uh, John has obviously gone on to, um, you know, quite spectacular uh, career as a journalist, uh, which he made for himself largely. Uh, But another man has published a very well-received book. Um, It was well-received by Booklist, uh, NPR, other reviewers. Uh, uh, You know, a man who could hardly compose a full sentence when he first came in over the course of literally a year and a half composed an essay uh, that went into print. So the gratification of actually seeing people move into print um, was important for keeping that going. But the thing that I also realized was that if you take a group of people who have and are in the process of doing the work, of analyzing why they've uh, committed the acts that they have, in that process, they are literally melting down everything they previously thought about themselves, finding the parts that are salvageable, Mm -hmm. and then rebuilding their personalities from the ground up. And then you take someone who's gone through that process of self-analysis and self-reflection, and you put them in an institution which is a daily passion play of right and wrong where the state power or state power takes on hands and batons and chains and pepper spray and literally is able to lay hands on citizens as it will because there's virtually no you know outside assessment of prisons you take someone with that kind of inner self-knowledge and the person with that kind of experience if they can simply be shown how to write clearly they will produce documents that the world outside not only will read, but really needs to read. Mm. And that really launched uh, my, you know, um, another part of my uh, research is actually accumulating and documenting and archiving the writing incarcerated people. Uh, there was a book project that came out of that fourth city, Essays from the Prison in America. Uh, and then, out of that, because essays just kept coming to me, uh, we created a digital archive called the American Prison Writing Archive, uh, which currently holds three thousand and fifty four nonfiction essays by currently incarcerated people writing about their experience inside. Mm. Uh, and I found in teaching and using that in my classes uh, that reading those essays is absolutely transformative for um, you know the average person's sense of how does our prison and how does our penal system and our criminal justice system operate. Yeah.
0: I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Why? Why is it so important for us on the outside to read read these essays of folks that are locked up?
2: You can't expect there to be a uh, George Floyd video uh, that mm-hmm. changes everybody's attitudes yeah, about crime yeah. One, cell phones aren't inside. And if they are, they've been smuggled in and generally sold as contraband uh, by staff. Um, <clears throat> and they're they're you know uh, obviously I mean the prison will have an entire lockdown of the entire institution if they think there's a cell phone loose in there uh uh largely because there's a fear of people inside getting the information about how they live outside. Uh um so our George Floyd videos are the writing of incarcerated people. Um and they're important because uh why, and when we now that we're looking and reassessing how our criminal justice system works, everybody but the person who's on the receiving end of that system knows either one part of it, all right, Uh, or they have some sort of investment in their representation, how that works. So the police know their part. Judges and lawyers know their part, right? Uh, Prison guards know their part. Mm. No one has the whole picture. The person who has the whole picture is the person who's been through this system from beginning to end. And while we might say, well, this person's a criminal, they carried out some sort of terrible act, why should I listen to them? The reason we should listen to them is we have no other witnesses to how this system works and exactly what it is that brings people to the decisions they make um, that are uh, we deem crimes or are clearly crimes, uh, and we have no idea what the relationship is between uh, individuals, their home communities, policing, judicial systems, and the consequences once someone is inside a penal institution. Only these folks know what that whole picture looks like, right? Um, And can help us understand what that system looks like holistically.
0: Doran Larson is a professor of literature and creative writing at Hamilton College in New York and has spent years teaching creative writing. Thank
2: you. I really appreciate it as well.
0: Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.